Well, more than any year that I can remember, this year there seems to be a yearning for Christmas light. There is a strong desire for a break in the darkness. Now, obviously, the days are getting shorter. Um, it gets dark now about the time I'm having lunch. And uh, Christmas lights are wonderful in breaking that up. I love the fact that you can walk outside in the darkness and see lights all around. But there's a greater feeling of darkness that has been pounding us all year. We've been bombarded with these stories that have been around us, the horrific stories of sexual abuse, of these, what seems like monthly massive uh, mass shootings. We have reports of literal Nazis marching in the streets. And that's not even to mention the threat of nuclear war, political division in our country. I mean, you name it. And then we talk about the darkness in our own lives, the troubles that we struggle with, the conflicts that we've been facing, the things that have overwhelmed us. And we're just crying out. Just give me five minutes of Christmas, please. Just just some light. I want to sing a song. I want to drink some eggnog. I want to get away from all of this darkness. It's that same motivation that has constantly driven people from all time to look to this time of year especially with the the weariness and the darkness to celebrate light. The Romans had a festival during this time to worship the sun god. Pagan uh, worship emphasized the worship of light during the winter solstice. Everybody seems to recognize that even some some years are worse than others, but, but during this time, there's a need and a yearning for, for light to be there. And it's with that yearning that, that we begin this Advent series reflecting on Christmas light. Of course, we want to dig deeper than tinsel and blinky lights on the Christmas tree. Because there's a deep logic to the fact that the New Testament, when it talks about Jesus coming to the world, uses the metaphor of light. And a theme that we'll be running through this whole series is how John describes Jesus' birth when he says in John 1, uh, verse 5, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Now we do this series not because there's some command from Scripture that we need to be more spiritual during this time of year. Um, there's nothing in, uh, in Scripture that tells us that Christians should focus on the nativity, that we should uh, celebrate Jesus' birth. We don't, in fact, know when Jesus' real birthday was or were ever commanded to celebrate it in particular. But we recognize that this is in your face. Everywhere you go, you are confronted with Christmas. You're in the mall. You're in the doctor's office. You hear the songs around. You see the decorations. And so we need to address it. It's relevant. And so let's turn now to this theme of light. Not simply a light that distracts us from darkness. But we want to look here, as Paul describes, 
a light that actually does something about the darkness. And so let's turn to this passage now. A turn to a better hope. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We know that your word is even called the light to our feet. We pray that oftentimes we feel like we're in the dark, that we don't know. And we need your wisdom and your light. Use this word now in our hearts and our minds. And grow us in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage in First Thessalonians paints a vivid contrast between those who are of the light and those who are of the darkness. The light side and the dark side. Nothing to do with Star Wars, sorry. And it doesn't even have to do with ethical categories. This is not saying that uh, there are the people in the dark who are particularly wicked and those who are the light who are the good people. The way Paul uses it here in this passage refers to those who have hope and those who do not have hope. Paul wants to make this distinction clear because he's noticing, even in this young church that he has ministered to, that they are confused. They should be having this hope that is there for Christians, that God wants us all to have. And yet they're living as people who do not have hope. They're not experiencing it. And so now, in chapter 5, he points them to the day of the Lord. The day when Christ will return. That day out there at the end of human history where God will make all things right. And that's not really a surprising move. For oftentimes, Christians, when challenged about their hope, they point forward into the future. They talk about what will come. And all the blessings that will be there. And in that sense, this is a very fitting Advent passage. Advent's a word that means coming. And traditionally, people use Advent not simply to reflect upon Christ's first coming, but to think about his second coming. But the surprising thing about this passage is that when Paul talks about this coming, he focuses less on all the blessings that will come when he wants to talk about their hope. Rather, he spends time talking about the timing of this coming. The timing of it. And then even more puzzling, he says that he refuses to give the details of that timing. You see, he says, in fact, I don't even need to write to you about these details. There will be no signs, no things that will take place. There's no chart in the back of your Bible that will tell you all the little events in human history that have to happen before Christ comes back. No, he says that you cannot plan for it. It will come, and you cannot predict it. It will be sudden. Now, it's the suddenness that he wants to draw attention to. It's important because our reaction to the suddenness of its coming will expose whether we truly embrace this hope or rather rather if we are the people that are wandering in darkness. Do you belong to the light? He wants you to have this hope. So he paints this picture 
What will it be like on that day when the suddenness comes? What will it be for both groups? And it's really eye-opening. Let's look at both of these groups. First, he describes those he characterizes as people without hope. What will it be like for them? Well, in a word, it will be shocking. They will be stunned. Paul, uh, you know, if, if you read some of his letters, you know that he never shies away from a really good mixed metaphor. Paul uses a wonderful mixed metaphor to describe what it would be like. It's like a, a thief coming in the night, robbing a pregnant woman with labor pains in the dark while she's asleep and perhaps maybe drunk. I don't think he meant for us to take them all at once. But looking at them one at a time, you see the common thread. You will be caught off guard. Those without hope will be caught off guard. The thief, he comes at night because that's when you are vulnerable. That's when you are groggy. I don't know about you, but... It's 10 o'clock these days. I can't get my eyes open to read a book, let alone be alert enough to know if there's an attack coming into my house. I'm vulnerable. Similarly, a pregnant woman, she knows she's pregnant, but nothing can prepare her for the suddenness and the intensity of the contraction that comes upon her that says, this is the time. Now, the point here that Paul's trying to drive at is not that God loves a good surprise, that he's just waiting to jump out and say, gotcha. No, he's trying to illustrate that there are people who are without hope, and the reason they're without hope is because they are not prepared. The emphasis is that there is no expectation that there's anything that's going to happen. They don't understand the full weight of the problem. Think about what think about how profound that is. When Paul wants to describe the opposite of hope, what does he do? How would you describe the opposite of hope? Well, Paul does not use terms we would use. He doesn't talk about despair. He doesn't show a people wringing their hands or crying out to God to save them. He doesn't describe a people who are pessimistic. Or cynical? How does Paul describe people who are the opposite of hope? His description is of people going about their daily lives, never expecting anything to be different. People are caught because they're living in the routineness of their life. The shock comes to them because they don't expect anything ever to be different. I want to look at two characteristics of the people in the dark, or the people of the dark. And the first is this, that they don't expect for a hope to come from beyond them. That is a really accurate picture of hopelessness. It's a closed system where nothing ever changes. It's basically expecting the same thing day after day without anything to interrupt. In our house, the, uh, the kitchen and the dining room and the hallway all sort of make a circle. And uh, one day, one of our children 
uh, was about three years old, running laps around in a circle again and again and again, maybe 20 times. And we're just standing there looking at this bundle of activity. And then, and then she says, I'm almost there. Where are you going? If you're running in a circle, how do you ever know when you're there? That's life in the darkness. He believes that we're on our own. There's nothing, no expectation that will intervene to tell us. And it builds in a certain sense of routineness. That's what he says about people getting drunk. I don't think here he's talking about a drunkenness per se, or alcoholism, or drowning yourself in sorrows. No, he's saying there's no expectation that anything's going to happen. It's the end of the day. I have no reason to stay alert, so I'm going to get drunk. All that's left in my day is for me to go to sleep. That's hopelessness. It's not wringing your hands in despair, but a complete lack of expectation that God is going to intervene. That feeling of being left alone. In the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, children's books in Narnia, he says, it's like Narnia without Aslan. Always winter, but never Christmas. Is that you? Is that you? Even you who know your Christian faith to be solid, are you living as though you're in the dark? Where things day after day just are the same? You know, experiencing life that way will lead you to utter despair. It's that level of hopelessness that if you stop to actually think about it, it would drive you mad. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher and just amazing thinker, he reflects upon that misery that we have in life when we don't actually contemplate the hopelessness of being left alone. And he says what we do, actually, we seek out diversion. We seek out things that will distract us, whether it's uh, TV or, or socializing or escaping into a book, something that will just get our minds away from the, the helplessness that we have. Get our mind onto something else. But, you know, the interesting thing is that that's only the first little bit of what Pascal says. He says, more likely what we do, rather than stopping and, and relaxing, is we keep ourselves insanely busy. That we work ourselves to the bone. He calls this diversion. Let me fill my schedule with so much activity and I can be so stressed out by the busyness that I've put into my life because busyness is much better than being left alone to contemplate my misery. Let me ignore the darkness by working myself to the bone. And that way I can look out and maybe I won't say peace and security but at least I won't be thinking about the problems that are out there. Now, Paul wants to get to this point as he talks about those who are in darkness. And he wants to say, you don't really understand. Your darkness is much worse. He actually says, 
the situation is more catastrophic than you can even imagine. And that's the second characteristic of those who are in the dark. They don't see the problem. They don't see the problem is greater than they can, man- they, they can manage. You see, not only do they think of the world as a closed system, they think of the problems in the world as all things that they can manage to make better. However much you hear about the news stories this past year of everything that went wrong, sexual misconduct, racial injustice, whatever it is, you read the news story, and then either later in that paper or the next day, there will be another news story to say, this is how you fix it. If we just do this, it will never happen again. We fool ourselves. Missing something much bigger at work here. The darkness is far worse. God knows the small solutions, the little band-aids, will never bring real hope because they don't get the problem. In fact, from God's perspective, the true solution only comes when deep cuts are made. God must come and bring righteousness. He must come and judge and condemn and keep all his accounts. And that is the picture of the day of the Lord. It's one that is brought throughout the Old Testament to say there will be a day when God will bring a reckoning. And for those in darkness, they do not recognize it. They don't see that The problems are beyond their own making, but in fact, they don't even see that the problem lies within their own hearts. God needs to come to bring perfect justice. We get into these academic debates about the problem of evil, and they're always so weak. They always come out as, oh, where was God when these horrific things happened? The message from the Scripture is constant. There will not be one Action that was unjust that will not be paid for. Goodness and truth will stand on the last day. That's the striking image of that passage we heard in the Old Testament of Isaiah 59. The Lord looks around. Did you hear that? The Lord looks around, and what does he see? Justice isn't being upheld. Truth is lacking. Righteousness is standing and far off. It's this darkness, and nobody is there to do anything about it. Verse 15 says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, and he saw that there was no man to intercede. Humanity wasn't good enough to do anything about the darkness, even the darkness they were creating. So what happens? God does something about it himself. The Lord himself acts. And then you see this amazing picture of the Lord putting on armor, and going into battle. He goes repaying all those according to their deeds. He goes establishing the day of the Lord in that Old Testament theme. Paul has that image all in his mind as he describes the day of the Lord here in 1 Thessalonians. For those in darkness, it is a helpless situation. It is terrifying. But then, how in the world can he say that there are people of light? 
how can he turn right around to talk to Christians and say, you know what, things will work out good for you. You should be confident in this day. It seems arrogant. It seems hypocritical for the Christians to think that on that day they could possibly stand. But look at what Paul does as he refers to Isaiah 59 and that very battle. Do you see what he does to that? He quotes it there in verse 8, but then he describes the actual battle in verse 9 and 10, a battle that is not in the future, but a battle that has already taken place. A battle that has taken place for the Christian in Christ on the cross. On the cross, God has put that end times battle to work to get to the very root of the, of the problem. It's a battle to destroy wickedness and darkness and bring a new creation, a new day that will dawn. We have that future hope. Not because we can survive that day on our own merit, because we've done enough to clean ourselves up or to present ourselves as worthy for God's judgment. No. We survive that day because we trust that Christ, on our behalf, has done battle with our sin, has destroyed it, and has fully paid for it. That is Christian hope. Christian hope is not the pie in the sky, let's be an optimist and think things will all work out very nicely in some blind leap of what the future will hold. That is not Christian hope. That's sick sentimentalism that will leave you surprised when anything bad ever happens in your life. No, Christian hope is one that is founded on a past event of God completely dealing with the problems of this world. Because the problems of this world need to be dealt with at its roots. He says, then, then, because of what Christ has done, we can look to the day of the Lord with joy. Because it won't bring wrath for us. The wrath has already been poured out. The day of the Lord, then, will bring salvation and life. It's such a good day. It ends with that climactic picture in Isaiah 60 where a new day has dawned and light just floods the place. We can look to that day now. Going back to that passage in Isaiah, God fights for justice. And he says that that will be the dawning of a new day. Just as the dawning of the first creation began with God saying, let there be light, so now the dawning of this day involves the shining of light. Arise and shine, for thy light has come. The Christian now faces the day not only with assurance that that we will escape judgment, but with an eager hope of all things being made new. The day of the Lord ends the long night of sin and suffering. Everything sad is being made to come untrue. This is the hope that God wants for you. This is the hope that if you're not experiencing it, then you're missing out on the promises that God has the life and the experience that he wants for you as a Christian. Because Paul says that day should not just 
stand out there as a day you look forward to. But that day needs to start characterizing how you live today. Listen to how he puts it in verse 5. He says, you are of the day. Or even better, in verse 8, he says, you belong to the day. You see what he's saying there? Not only, hey, that day's going to be great when it comes, but that's now how you need to define yourself. Does your future hope influence your day-to-day life? Does it change the way you live? This passage is saying that has to happen. Your hope isn't just something that's in the future. The future must define the present. It's one thing if you plan to go off and visit a foreign country. I mean, you may pick up some of the lingo and some of the sights to see. But if you're going to move there for the rest of your life, things right now are going to change. You're going to be more earnest in your attempts to learn the language. You're going to figure out the culture. It's going to determine your behavior even now because you know where you're going. It's living in such a way that when Christ returns, you won't be caught off guard because it's going to match your expectations. You're going to know that the the battle has already been fought, that the end is going to come. And so you live now in light of both of those things. But the problem is, it still looks dark outside. The problem is, everything we see around us still screams darkness. It still screams night. Some of you were very active in August when the solar eclipse came. Went out and got special glasses, right? Where maybe you were like us and made a little cardboard box where you could sort of see the eclipse in. But if you stood out there, you saw, even in Connecticut, it started to get a little dark. And then what happened? The birds who were chirping stopped. It's amazing. You can hear where it wasn't that profound. And then the the bucks, the crickets, they started. And all around you, you get all the the signals of nighttime, but it's daytime. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something. So Paul is saying, how ridiculous would it be is if we were to take our cues from all the animals around us and say, well, you know what? Kind of getting dark, and the crickets are going, so uh, I'm going to take off from work now. I know it's 2 o'clock, but it's all it's nighttime, right? Drive home, get into bed, start going to sleep. It's ridiculous. Why would we take the cues from everything around us and not base it on fact? We are of the day. The day has dawned in our hearts. As Peter says, the, the morning star has risen in our hearts. Why do we live as though it's dark? Why do we live as though the night is still present? You are of the day, not of the night. Okay, so those are all the things that we shouldn't look for. What, what about, how, what should that characterize our life to be like? What, do, what is it like to live as children of light? What does this hope look like? Well, first, just like those of darkness, we have to realize that the problem is much bigger than we think. Our hope really begins with the realization that the problem is bigger than something that we can control ourselves or change. 
we need to stop convincing ourselves that the real solution is that we work harder and, and press more that we will get to a point in our career where we'll plateau. And then we'll reach that point where we can now just coast. We need to stop convincing ourselves that, that we can manage our families to the point where our kids will finally learn obedience and be perfect and happy, and then we'll be content. We need to stop trying to think that there's stuff that we can control in our health or our desires or our jealousy or whatever, and that we'll then get to this point where we'll no longer struggle. Or perhaps on a large scale, we need to stop thinking that we can engineer society to fix us, to come up with a solution. Or that maybe we can just elect our way. If we just vote the right way, we'll finally get to the promised land. We cannot overcome the darkness by doubling our efforts here. A century ago, we learned this, right? We can't call any war the war that will end all wars. We're just scratching the surface until we realize the problem is much bigger, that it gets into our human heart and it dominates everything we do. But the answer is not despair. The answer is not just throwing your hands up. It's actually freeing. Because now you can be free to no longer put your flimsy hope on th- th- for the future on you. Now you can actually be freed up to put hope onto something solid and firm. We can rejoice because our hope is not in us, but in God. Our hope is secure. We have assurance because it doesn't depend on us. See, hope needs to come from beyond. Hope needs to come from beyond and promised on that day to come in in its culmination. But secondly, that, that also doesn't lead us to detachment. Being of the light should energize us to faithful living right now. It should motivate us to godliness. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, right? You know, sometimes we think because the day is going to come in the future, that we'll do often like what a lot of faithful Christians do and just say, well, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Why even bother? God will just take care of it later. But that's not how how Paul sees this image. That's not how God wants us to understand uh, life right now. Do you see how Paul used that Isaiah passage even? He talks about that war. And yes, he culminates it on the cross. But he he describes that armor. Do you see how he used that armor as a clear allusion to that passage? Who's wearing it? It's not God. It's not Christ even. It's you. It's you. Verse 8, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet for the hope of salvation. It's you. And it's not a command to go put it on or that someday it will be put on. It's in the past completed action, the, the aorist tense saying, it has happened to you, having put it on. Having put it on, you are now wearing that armor of that passage in Isaiah. 
It's amazing. It's putting on Christ. And listen to each piece of that armor. It's very familiar in Paul's language. Faith, hope, and love. That's the uniform of the Christian. Faith, walking in line with what is true of your Christianity. Trusting in Christ and His Word rather than the things around you. Love, derived from this redeeming love of God that that puts others before yourself so that you can now be self-giving, living for others. And hope. He ends with hope. Living as though the work began on the cross will find its culmination on the day when Christ returns. So that when Christ returns, your response will not be shock, but it will be as a people who've come to the one hope that they had. Isn't that interesting? You wear this armor, so now you join in with Christ. Into the battle that began the day he came to earth. Listen to that, the way that, I was just reflecting on that hymn we sung earlier, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Listen to how it described Christ's coming. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spread its vanguard on the way as the light of light descendeth from the realms of endless day. Endless day is where he is. Endless day is where we're coming from, or going to. And endless day he comes and descends, that the powers of hell may vanish, and the darkness clears away. Here it is, the light of lights, saying to his people, you are the light of the world. You're joining this battle now as God in Christ comes and wins the victory over darkness. It's a hope that not only conquered you and now puts you under the lordship of Christ, but now calls you to participate in this battle. A battle not of condemning evil and wickedness in people out there, but a battle in bringing repentance and faith, pointing to Christ as the hope. As you live out your faithfulness, as you proclaim the gospel, You join in this great warfare of light, casting out darkness. And so your hope that is out there on that day spills into this day. And we see Christ's victory. That is true hope. That is something to celebrate. Look, I am no Grinch. I love Christmas. I love the distraction of it. I love the lights. I love the movies. I love all the things that, invo- that are involved with the decorating and the parties. But if that's all it is, then that distraction will turn really bitter when January comes and you take down all the decorations and you're faced with three or four more months of winter. No. Christ comes not to make the drudgery of this life just a little bit better, Christ comes to bring light, a light that will fully dispel the darkness. He has come to bring day, a day that will overcome the night. And that will be forever. Amen. Let's pray.